towering above the landscape for over a half a mile is the world's tallest building. It's 2,722 feet. You maybe have never been to Dubai or have seen the, let me get this right, Burj Khalifa. It's the tallest building in the world. Maybe you've been to the Chicago Willis Tower. How many of you have done that, the skybox there? And you walk out. It's 1,000 feet higher than that. It's 50 stories more. And it would be absolutely daunting. For over a half a mile, it shoots into the air. Can you imagine walking up to that tower and feeling overwhelmed? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That's... Uh, a comparison, if you will, maybe a bad comparison to the holiness of God. Nothing stands in his presence. Who can stand in his presence? If you soak in his holiness and marinate in his holiness and invest in reading about his holiness and you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal just a little glimpse what his holiness is like, you will be more impressed than you can ever imagine. You will be more impressed by any wealth or any man-made structure like a stadium or building or even beauty, natural beauty. Let me ask you this question. What's the most impressive thing you've seen with your eyes that you tried to describe to someone who was not there? What words did you use? How did that description fall short of what you experienced? Last fall, my wife and I went on a trip to the Grand Tetons, and uh, we had gone with another couple. We went to the Zion National Park several years earlier, and when you try to describe the national park to someone who had never seen it. You use words like awesome, holy, grandeur, mind-blowing, and they kind of fall short, don't they? Yeah, they do. The essence of God is his holiness. It's not merely an attribute. It's an entire different category, who he is. Paul Tripp and his devotions, this was very helpful this week as I prepared this message. He said, the word holy comes from a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It means kadosh. And it means two things. The first understanding of the word holiness is to be separate or to cut, to be in a class all by yourself, to be distinct from anything that's ever existed or will exist. My wife bought a wedding dress. She wore it one time. That's it. I paid a lot of money to have it dry cleaned, and I've moved it six times. <laughs> well, it was for a holy day. And then I had the wonderful privilege of giving my daughter away, and I bought another wedding dress. Cha-ching, one time. It was separate, it was sacred. That's one definition. The other definition for holiness means to be entirely morally pure all the time and in every way and in every circumstance. The Lord of hosts is the definition of holiness. He is holy in justice, he is holy in patience, he is holy in anger, and he is holy in mercy. He is holy in love, he is holy in power, he is holy in sovereignty, he is holy in wisdom, he is holy in grace, he is holy in faithfulness, and he is holy in compassion. Now you might be thinking this morning, why does it matter? Why does it matter about the holiness of God? Because in the great narrative of the story of the scriptures, without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every being is responsible. Without the holy law, there would be no divine anger for sin. 
Without the holy law, without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Just a reminder from last week, even perfect supernatural beings named cherubim in Isaiah chapter 6, which literally mean burning fiery servants, they had human language that was stretched. They used the words holy, 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 and it was not one plus one plus one equals three. It was extrapolating words, multiplying words of sacredness and power and honor and glory. It is the holiness of God that gives proper perspective of our lives and our values, of our souls, and ultimately, ultimately, who we trust. So welcome to this message. We are in the fourth Sunday of a 30-sermon message or series called The Gospel of Isaiah, and this message is entitled Light Beyond Darkness. Another way of saying it is there's a real person in the middle of really scary and dark times. This passage of scripture that we're uh, looking at this morning, I said to someone this morning, I said, we're going to look at chapters 7 through 12. We're going to hand out bulletins and seatbelts as well, too. So you've been warned. It, uh, it was set up with the prologue, the prologue of Isaiah chapter 6. And what Isaiah saw and processed and heard will now be brought to two different countries, one called Judah, one called Israel. I want to encourage you to uh, look at the back of your bulletin. Our friends from the Bible Project did such a wonderful, wonderful job. And chapters 7 through 12 are illustrated there. And this message comes to two different tribes. And here's where we're going to go and try to get our heads around this a little bit. First of all, we're going to look at parallels to, to see. We're going to look at parables to see. We're going to see God's prophetic word to Judah and to Israel. And the same message that goes to Judah will go to Israel and we'll walk you through that. That's where we're going to go in 7 through 12. And then there's so many things that we could pull out of this passage of Scripture. Obviously, we don't have time to read all the chapters of Scripture. We'd be here all day. But we're going to look at two promises. Kind of the so what of these chapters. Ones that will hold your soul. I think they'll encourage your soul. really do. And number three, we're going to look at some responses to act on. What do we do with holiness? The God's people, the children of Israel, knew God unlike the Assyrians that you'll meet here in just a bit. In 7 through chapter 7 through 12 is really the uh, backstory of how God's people and who they would trust. God's people knew who the Lord was unlike the Assyrians. Yet they had the gall to worship idols and failed to acknowledge our Lord. Failing to acknowledge our Lord is not unique to Israel, but it's a product of sin. So here's what you need to know. I'm going to like fly over this really quick, but just to give you some background story. After Saul and David and Solomon, we did that series in about March called The Heart of the King. After Saul, David, and Solomon... God's people, the nation of Israel, split into two different countries. Think a civil war, if you will. The ten countries to the north were called Israel. The ten tribes to the north were called Israel. Their capital was in Samaria. The two tribes to the south were called Judah, and their capital 
was in Jerusalem. Do you see the split? The northern tribe took on a foreign country and started to attack the southern tribe. And so the southern tribes reached out to Assyria. Now when I say the word Assyria, I would love it if you would just kind of have the shakes. Because archaeology tells us that Assyria was one of the first empires of the foreign world. But they were also known as the Nazis of the foreign world. They were not only cruel, but they boasted of their cruelty. You don't make a pack with Nazis. True? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, page 328. Page 328, 2 Kings chapter 16, gives us a little bit of background. You need to get this and read this, and then you will find out how creepy the Assyrians really were. This is the history part. This is the background you need to know. I should give you a little background, and we'll do this very briefly. 2 Kings chapter 16, page 328. Did you find it there? In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramal, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old. How much did you know at 20? When he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years, unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the sight in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the king of Israel, and what did he do? He even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations. The Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places of the hilltops and under every spreading tree. The next verses talk about the northern tribes that were attacking him, and then what did he do? Verse 7, Ahaz sent a message to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I'm your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who is attacking me. And that sets up our passage of scripture with the perils, the parallels of these two. I'm having a problem here with my advanced slides. Rich, can you advance the next slide for me? Here's what you need to understand about the light beyond darkness, these two parallels. Do you see them in your bulletin insert? These two promises, or these two countries, I should say, one Judah and Israel, this will be repeated to them. They will have a moment of decision. They will have a moment of decision on who they will trust. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, in studying it this week, this is a very famous passage of scripture, and we hear it all the time, all the time, at Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Well, that's Christmas. I should wear my Christmas tie instead. But here's what I didn't see: look at the next verse in verse 15. This one called Emmanuel will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before this boy, the one called Emmanuel, knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. In other words, this little boy will be born, and while he's a toddler, the king of Assyria and the other king will be destroyed. What you're looking at here is, you, and you might look at me and say, but I thought that meant Jesus. It does. 
which means there's dual prophecy going on. Do you see? Little boy, as a reminder, as a signpost, another little boy to come in the, in the future. In these parallels to see between Judah and Israel, if you jump over to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8 through 10 through 14, you see a phrase that's repeated often in Isaiah 12, in Isaiah 9, 17, in Isaiah 9, 21, in Isaiah 10, 4. This is the phrase that's repeated four times in this moment of decision section of scripture. Here's the phrase. His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. It is stretched out his hand against them. You see that four times, underline that, underline that, underline that. And you know I make a big deal about repeated words because when repeated words are in the scripture, it's like the author is trying to shake you and saying, daughter, son, don't miss this. And so one scholar by the name of Alec Moitier, who's a British scholar and one of his specialties is Isaiah, he uses this, he says this, Isaiah uses a large vocabulary for anger in his Shakespearean way, a large vocabulary. Words like to snort personally, to feel it, exasperation, impatience, to be hot, to rage, to burn with fury, vexation, indignation, outbursting anger, storm of anger. All of these words, all of these words are used in the book of Isaiah. Wow. And it would be perfectly appropriate to say, Pastor, when is that anger going to be calmed? What can we do about the anger of God? This is a song that we sing in Christ alone in verse 2. You sing it. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, what's the phrase the wrath of God was satisfied wow two children two children that will talk about this one child is referred to in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3 these names have meaning and in the English Bible it helps us I made love to the prophetess, and she gave a birth to a son, and that the Lord said to him, name him Mahar Shai Hashbaz. What does that mean? It means that the Lord will plunder, and he will do it swiftly, but another child will come. Another child that we'll see in Isaiah chapter, six, chapter 9, verse 6. If you aren't secure in your faith, you won't be firm at all. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no security. Who will you hold on to? These are the two parallels that we see in Judah and Israel, a moment of decision. The second parallel that we see is in the chapters of Isaiah 7, 18 through 8, 8, and Isaiah 10, 5 through 15. You'll, you'll, you'll notice um, something really interesting in 8, 8. You'll notice the word at the end of verse 8, you'll notice the word Emmanuel. And then at the end of verse 10, you'll, you'll see the phrase, God is with us. I found that so interesting. They're used interchangeably. Why does that matter? Because they blanket 
a repeated word that says terrified or shattered or broken. That even in the kingdom refusal and the judgment to come, God's mercy is there. Remember, the Assyrians were the ancient Nazis. Why in the world would you trust them? Why would you trust them? It'd be a perfectly appropriate question to say, well, Pastor Kirk, isn't God mad at the Assyrians as well, too, if they're so wicked? Yes, he is. And Isaiah prophesies to that. In your English Bibles, do you see it there on page 593? It says this, the Lord's anger against Israel. Oops, that was the wrong one. I missed that one. I'm sorry. The Lord will bring about his justice. Where was it? I'm sorry. It's on 10 verse 5. 10 verse 5. God will bring his judgment on the Nazis. Understand this, friend. Be encouraged by this. God is still on the throne in the historical process, then as he is now. He is not shocked by the pandemic, nor gender conversations, nor political discussions, nor economic challenges, nor any issue that makes its way to the headlines. None of it shock him or surprises him. He has given you his spirit, child of the king. He has given you the promise of wisdom. He has given you a 24 access with the application of prayer. And he has given you fellow members of a physical body called the bride, real-time feedback and counsel with people who want to love you. And he has given you, beloved ones, gifts, multiple gifts, multiple gifts to use for service in his name. Here's what you need to know. It's decision, and then judgment will come. But there are parallels as well, too. There are more parallels. The parallels that were given to Judah and parallels that were given to Israel, one is in 8, 9, chapters 8 verses 9 through 22 in the book of Isaiah and then to Israel chapter 10 through 15 through 34 and this word is used again and again the word is remnant you see it repeated in 819 in in chapter 8 in that section and you know what sets it off this is was really crazy if you look at 819 it starts with this, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, this is in the context of the occult that was happening, that God would still save his people, that they, the children of Israel and God's people and followers of Jesus will not become extinct. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. The first promise that was given was of a firstborn son. Again, I know we're flipping back and forth, so just bear with me as we try to cover this passage, this, these passages of scripture. In Isaiah chapter seven, verse three, Isaiah also had a son. Isaiah chapter seven, verse three, Shir Shabbath, which means a remnant will return. There will always be a gospel witness. You may not see it, but it's based on God's promises. Here's the final parallel that you need to see between Judah and Israel in this section of scripture. This is the one that we hold to and holds us. There will be a future messianic king. You see that in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and then again to Israel in 11, 1 through 16. 
And chapter 9 has this beautiful poetic air of the Messiah, no gloom in the light. In the, there will be no gloom, for there will be light in the darkness. And a wonder child is introduced. This wonder child will come, will bring the forever Davidic kingdom. We may be surrounded by darkness, but the light of the world leads us. And here you need to hear the swelling of George Frederick Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, unto us a son is given. He will be called a wonder of counselors. He will be called a warrior god. He will be called a father in perpetuity. And he will be called the prince of peace. This is the light of the world. This is Jesus when he spoke in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' good friend John writes this in John 1, 7. This is the message we have heard from him and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, is he in the light? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Wow. So what are the promises to hold on to? The promises to hold on to really come from chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11 and 12, again, are the first and second coming of Christ. And this is the first one that we can hold on to. Faith is never, oh man, we're having a problem. There we go. Darkness will be, play, will be replaced by rejoicing. This is found in chapters 11 through 12, and it bookends what began in Isaiah 6, one through tw one, beginning in verse 1. That section of scripture began with grief when Isaiah was grieving on the death of his king, Uzziah. But darkness will not have the last word. Isaiah sees hope for the divine action against all odds. David's promises will be fulfilled. A city will be returned. We see that in Isaiah 1, 25 through 27. And Zion, Zion promises will be returned as well too. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. And just read verse 3. Do you find it there on page 589? Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem, and they will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, they will be called holy. Wow. The future is bright for followers of Christ. Not by gradual improvements or by clever human planning. It is a work of God, and it comes from his outworking of his faithfulness. That happens heart by heart, and we have a part I love the questions that we walked through in January and February on joining Jesus in mission. Those questions, the third question is, what kind of conversations are you having with pre-Christians? We have a part of that. What good can we do around here? And how can we help someone in prayer? The second promise that we can hold on to is faith is never a certificate of immunity. Faith is never a certificate of immunity. In other words, bad things won't happen. 
It's not a leap into the dark, it's a step towards the light, and it is based on evidence. Faith is tethered to the God-man of history. I asked Karen if we could sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the last line that you sang in verse 4 was this, Let good and kindreds go, the mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, his kingdom will last forever. Because of Jesus, we have the durability to hold on to because of the light which God has promised. Remember, these promises, these prophecies of Isaiah happened over 700 years. The Assyrian darkness would come approximately in five years from his prophetic voice. But the question is for us is not if, but when hard times come. What will you hold on to? This is a powerful verse, and I'd like us to read it together out loud as we affirm this. Let's read it out loud in Jesus' name. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by the word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good and word. As a follower of Jesus, you are holy. You've been called holy if you're a child of God, and you stand before God as righteous because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been given to you. That's your personal account. But part two is because you've been bought with this gift, the blood of Jesus, you are no longer your own. You are set apart by God's grace for God's purposes. And as Lord, he reigns and owns you. You can't separate them. Your allegiance isn't for the best version of yourself, your happiness, your success, your comfort, your bucket list. His purpose is his kingdom and you and I are invited to be a part of that. So wherever you are, whomever you are, whatever you do, whatever age or stage, the Holy Ghost resides in you. And you are his salt and light. So what do we do with this? What are some responses that we can act on? These are printed in your bulletin, and I hope that you will take them and say, Lord, would you allow these things to happen? First of all is this soak in the holiness of God Almighty. Soak in it. How do I soak in it? Here are three passages of scripture simply to read, to meditate on. I find just for fun, I'll read it in one translation and then read it in another translation. Then read. Read. Invest in the holiness of God. Two wonderful classic books called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sprawl and Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer will bless your soul. And the third, pray the Holy Spirit will open your eyes even a little bit, even a little bit, to this grand, glorious essence of who our Father is. Would you just show me a little bit about your holiness? So let me end with this. Who is this light beyond darkness? What's he like? Really, is he all that good? A couple weeks ago, I was mowing my lawn and I was listening to uh, a, uh, a young woman who has spoke to 
a group of young adults. Her name is Sadie Robertson Huff. She's the daughter of one of the Duck Dynasties. So for some of you, you'll think, ooh, she's really good. She talked about who, who is this person, light beyond darkness. I thought it was so good, I wanted to share it. Who is he? He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He always was, he always is, and he always will be unmoved and unchanged, undefeated and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world cannot understand him and the armies cannot defeat him. He is light, he is love, he is longevity, and he is Lord. He is good, he is kindness, he is gentleness in God. He is holy, he is righteous, he is mighty, he is pure, and he is powerful. His words are right. And his word is eternal. His will is unchanging and his mind is on me. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my God, my guide. He is my peace. And he calls me a friend. He is my joy, my comfort, my Lord, and he rules my life. His bond is love. His burden is light. And his promise is abundant life. He is the wisdom of the wise, the power of the powerful, the ancient of days, the ruler of rulers, the leader of leaders, the overseer of overcomers, and the sovereign Lord of all that was and is and is to come. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He'll never mislead me. He'll never forget me and never overlook me and never cancel me. He really wants to know you and have you know him. And when you fall, he lifts you up. And when you fail, he forgives. And when you are weak, that's his specialty. He pours out his grace because he is strong. And when you are lost, he is the way. And when you are afraid, he gives strength. And when you and I stumble, he holds you. And when you hurt, he heals. And when you're broken, he mends you. And when you're hungry, he feeds you. And when you're thirsty, oh, the water he gives really, really quenches. And when you face trials, trials he is with you. When not, when not if you face persecution, but when you face persecution, he shields you. When you face problems, he comforts you. When you face loss, he provides for you. When you face death, he carries you home. He is God, he is faithful. Every time to everyone, anytime to every generation and generation next, next. I am his and he is mine. He is holy, he is sovereign, and the cross means all is well with my soul. That friend is the light beyond the darkness. And that's who we are tethered to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, through your servant, the prophet Isaiah, you gave these strong words to people that you loved. And you love the bride. We have a moment of decision. We have a moment of decision that comes every day to trust you. I thank you that you poured out your wrath upon your son, Jesus, by confession and repentance and turning, we cry out for mercy. He is our hope. In all of these things that were just stated, they're all true. And so, Holy Spirit, in a way that you do perfectly because you are a wonder of a counselor, minister to the bride, grant us repentant spirits 
as we ponder the overwhelming essence of your holiness. Who are we? We are objects not of wrath, but of mercy and grace when we say, Jesus, have mercy on me. So Holy Spirit, do your work as you use the word in Christ's name.